Hi there. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Some Other Sphere. If you enjoy it, please leave a rating on your preferred podcast platform or like and share it on social media, as it all really helps to promote the show. If you'd like to support the upkeep of the podcast as well, you can donate via Ko-fi. Go to ko-fi.com forward slash some other sphere podcast to find out more. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter at spherical underscore pod. Thank you again. And now on to the episode. Hello and welcome to Some Other Sphere, a podcast exploring our strange world, one conversation at a time, hosted by Rick Palmer. My guest for this episode is folklorist and author Jeremy Hart, who joined me to talk about his new book, Cloven Country, The Devil in the English Landscape. Jeremy has written extensively on local history, folklore and the supernatural, and is the curator of the Bourne Hall Museum at Epsom and Yule, as well as secretary of the Romany and Traveller Family History Society. In Cloven Country, he explores the background of those stories where the devil played a part, both in creating the English landscape, as well as his relationships with the people who populated it which could range from being hoodwinked by cunning cobblers to punishing wealthy merchants and landowners for their greed and avarice. In the interview, I begin by talking with Jeremy about what inspired the idea for the book, and then look at the history of his appearances in English folklore, and some of the themes and motifs that are most common there. We also talk about the relationship between this kind of folklore and people's personal experience of the supernatural and how the latter has become much more prevalent in modern times, to the extent that the presence of the landscape devil in recent storytelling is hard to discern. One small piece of housekeeping before we get to the interview. Jeremy's sound wasn't perfect, but I don't think it detracts from what was a fun and interesting conversation. Enjoy! Jeremy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. What first interested you in writing a book about the devil in English folklore? It's something I realised, um, like a lot of people, I, I, I found myself with the, the possibility of a lockdown project, that here was something that I had been circling around many times. I, I'd been discussing other things. I've worked on fairies, I've worked on ghosts, I'd worked a lot on local legends, uh, especially West Country, where I'm from. Um, and the devil kept recurring. And I, I talked this over to friends and they were, oh, that's interesting. So I thought, well, you know, he has the best tunes and he is such a character. Um, it's one of the few kind of characters you can bring on in a folk tale where everybody immediately goes, ah, the devil. They've got the cloven hoof, they've got the horns, they know that he'll do some things, he won't do other things, they know that he'll make pacts. Um, they'll know that he'll be defeated, but they know that he'll be scary. All the time, it's like you don't have to do the uh, the job of, of building up a background. It's almost like it's kind of episode two of a sitcom. People know who the characters are and they can sit back and watch the plot. Right, okay. And so with this project, where did you start? Did you have an idea about 
where to start with the research and yeah luckily um this is based very much on, on the corpus of, of english local legend um england um specifically i think england has been very lucky that um, there's this strong county tradition and that's been current since folklore books really started to be at all professional um 1870s 1880s so the material had been collected from then in some ways um Although, you know, as a folklorist, you always love to say, oh, folklore is alive, folklore is still happening, um, it's growing all around us, it's not just something that's, you know, olden days on the village green. But there are, there are certain genre like the, um, the supernatural local legend, as, as opposed to like, say, you know, the supernatural ghost story, which is, is rooted in experience and, and in some kind of reality, that's still going. The local legend is pretty much, you know, a closed corpus. Um, people aren't creating very many new ones. What they are doing is that they're working with the ones that exist and putting bits together and retelling them, and they're very, very often changing the, the emphasis of the story. So, so there was a little bit of a history there. I, I was able, I think, to show that, you know, these were not timeless stories. That there was an era, like somewhere around about the, the 17th, 18th century, when the devil as a, as a big folk character, the devil who digs ditches, the devil who builds bridges, came on stage. And there's a point somewhere in the 19th century when they stopped adding more stories. So luckily, um, I, had, I had a bookshelf, um, you know, I had access to the great digitized Victorian collections. Um, the one thing I couldn't do in lockdown was to go out and look at the places. Um, so um, luckily, I, I was able to rely on uh, previous years of diabolical tourism. It's a bit of a trip down memory lane to think of all the places I've been to and to reimagine them as the, uh, the stage settings for, for the narratives. Early on in the book, you start with a location, I think it's in the Isle of Wight, and what you reveal is that its name, its association with the devil is, is relatively recent. Was that a surprise? Yeah, yeah, he... he, he um... He steals steals the thunder from the fairies. Um, one or two of these tale types have been interesting a lot of scholars. Um, you know, I, I hope I've given due credit for that. But but what's called the disputed site for a church, um, you know, the one in which the church is going to be built at A, um, down in the valley or on, on top of the hill or in the middle of the village and, and ends up being built at another location. That, that's one of the few stories where we can actually see it emerging from the Middle Ages. Uh, one of our problems, people tend to forget that, you know, there's an awful lot of medieval storytelling, um, which wasn't pious, uh, and which was told in vernacular, and which has just slipped us by. But here it's actually a pious story, um, clearly originally told about saints, um, which has been co-opted by the folk. Uh, and, and so, yes, I, I, I was able to... Uh, to look at uh, the location in a way made it. Um, I, I think that although, um, you know, we, we, we like to kind of catalogue things as folklorists, uh, you know, this is kind of like the, 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 the shelf full of stuffed butterflies. Yes, but you have to remember what they were like and, and a little bit of um, experience of, of, of place, a, a sense of what it's actually like to stand there and go, oh, here, this is where he moved all the stones up mysteriously at midnight. That gives you much more of a feeling of the living story. Yeah, okay. I can I see what you mean there. The chapter you begin the book with relates to stories where 
the devil is often fooled by a, a quick-witted mortal. Was that always going to be the place where you started? I, I think so. I, I think that um, what grew on me, um, I, I knew that they were stories about um, intelligence, um, outwitting, you know, brute strength and, and of course vast size. The devil is standing in for, for the giant in these tales. Um, more and more as I worked my way through, I began to feel there was a little sort of ripple of class antagonism in so many of these stories. Um, you know, the devil is simultaneously um, the gentleman. Uh, the gentleman with bad motives, the, the gentleman who wants to seduce the village girl, um, the, the gentleman who, who actually wants to browbeat the, um, the, the, the local people uh, who are simply trying to make their own living. The, the, you know, the gentleman who insists on, on doing one better um, and getting the, uh, the farmland, which nobody else can claim. Um, and of course, the, the, the fun thing is that so many of these stories were recorded um, by, you know, um, jobbing clergy. I mean, I, I think one of the things people have, have as a model for, for Victorian folklore, and it's interesting in a way that people project this on the past, is that it was recorded by the upper classes from essentially the, the rural working classes. And of course, you know, technically that's true. But when you actually look at some of the people who were doing it, they were quite maverick anyway. Uh, and, and I think in a, a really um, a stratified society, like the Victorian countryside, once you stepped out of role, you really did slip in between the cracks. So a lot of these people were being told the stories and, and chuckling along with the, uh, the narrative about getting one better on the gentleman. Hmm. Um, so when these stories were sort of in that era when they were being told, um, what sort of role do you think that they had in terms of informing the people about where they live? Some of them are sort of place located and some of them are similar stories which are pop up in different parts of the country. Um, yes. Yes, well, one of the areas where, um, although I, um, I pursued the, the line of thought that it was about place, and that's something I think that people very much relate to nowadays, um, it is true there are whole sections of diabolical law, like, like the, um, the stories about the devil being outwitted by a clever woman, which actually appear in ballads, and, and so they're kind of free-floating. Um, the storyline is similar. Uh, generally speaking, I, I, I put a lot of my landscape in earlier in the book where the material is much more abundant. You've got lots of variations on the tales. Uh, and I also knew that um, for, from a reader's perspective, you know, if, if you stand up and say it's going to be about the devil, people are going to want to have a touch of folk horror somewhere in the narrative. So I, 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 le I left my, my horrors until right at the end, um, where... I confess they are much, much rarer. They are a handful of stories, although they've been appreciated and retold very frequently in the kind of folklore storytelling revival. Right, yeah. Earlier on, you were mentioning how this sort of folklore doesn't really exist anymore in terms of it being told, whereas uh, interesting ghosts and experiences of the supernatural do still continue. It, is the reason for that, you th do you think, because we now have the ability to um, read stories much more easily by ourselves, it's not so much of a group experience? 
I think this is true. I, th I think that where a story is still <clears throat> strongly pegged to the locality, where it's become part of um, local identity, um, you go to places and, and you will find that it, it is being encouraged. The giant of the Rekin, which is essentially a, a giant variant of the uh, the Devil Story, has got his own pub named after him. Uh, <laughs> you know, the way as statuary, um, it's interesting. There, there is, I think, no public um, Devil statuary in England. There are a couple of lovely examples in Germany where the equivalent local tales have, have inspired somebody who, who's put it up, and of course that provides you know what we call the story peg. You know, kids go past it and go, "Mummy," you know. What, what's going on? What's what's the lady doing to that that man with the horns on? So, I, th I think that where they exist, they they've become a kind of canon. But that's true of a lot of other folklore as well. I mean, that that's true of folk performance. In some ways, what we're talking about is um, a modern change in in the way in which we deal with um, local tradition. You used to carry on simply doing a local tradition because, well, you know, it was Christmas and, and that was how you went round the houses and you made money and so on. You didn't kind of foreground the identity. Now you're making a deliberate choice. And, the, you know, the result of that is that many of um, the big local customs, the sort of thing that Simon Coston is, is fascinated in in the Museum of British Folklore, have, have almost become listed buildings, if you like. You can't not do them. You can't not perform the Abbot's Bromley horn dance because, good God, you know, we've been doing it since 1680 or, or yay Um and, and so some of the, the best love stories, I mean, like the Devil's Dyke in, in Sussex with which we, we began, um, that has actually now become a significant Sussex story and it would drop the bottom out of a lot of people's worlds, you know, if it wasn't there. Whereas interestingly, at um, Chanctonbury Ring, which is, is the hill port, which gets kind of walk-on part, um, as one of the um, the hills formed by bits of dirt that the devil throws up in the air while he's busy attempting to dig his way through the South Downs uh, and let the sea in. Chanctonbury has itself um, got a great body of much more diffuse lore. It hasn't actually got a legend. It hasn't got anything you can point to and go, this is the tale of Chanctonbury Ring. The devil does appear there if you run um, seven times around the hill or seven times backwards or 13 times or you know, you know, nine times whilst holding your breath. It's got all that kind of variation in, in um, performance, which kind of characterises a really living tradition. But it's more oriented to this is what happens. Um, I, I think live folklore now is very much experiential. <clears throat> it has to be, well, this actually happened to somebody or this, this could happen to you. Or like when I was a kid, we were convinced this would happen to us. You don't actually have to take it at, um, you know, absolute 100% um, parapsychological level of seriousness. You just have to accept that somebody somewhere thinks it can happen. And of course, a lot of law um, was exactly like that. Um, the, uh, the law, the pre-Reformation law of the saints, which is really the, the lost folklore of England or the, the, the phase of it, which... Um, disappeared along with the hero legends when the devil stories came along. And that was actually absolutely based on, if you do this, you will be healed. Here is a marvellous story. It may stretch belief a little bit, but like, you know, it's the same. So I think there's kind of an oscillation between um, plausibility and the, and the stories that get circulated now are things like urban legends, which are essentially plausible narratives, um, you know, all right, you know, maniacs with, with, with hooks and, 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 you know, people sneaking uh, biscuits out of what turns out to be their own packet. 
stretch belief, but they are still fundamentally plausible in, in our social world. Uh, they don't contain dragons, uh, they, they don't contain sprouting stars. That kind of live folklore ha has to fit into a social model of what can happen. Uh, where, whereas the folk tale, which, which yeah, you're right, I think is, is now a kind of a, a slightly fossilized genre, it's performed in certain locations. In, in the same way that like you carry on doing maypole dancing if you've got a maypole in your village it wouldn't occur to you to go and put up a, a hundred foot legs of wood you know for no particular reason there's fossil folklore and then the you know the, there are the, the traditions which are live and which are generating things and they actually have to to be socially plausible hmm. and so with the folk tales the the folklore that that you researched uh, it, hmm. Is the folklore devil different from the the Christian devil? I guess. Yeah, the the, the, the theological devil. Yeah. Yes, and and it's weird. I mean, like they, they send each other a Christmas card once a year, and otherwise have no contact whatsoever. <laughs> um, and I do sometimes wonder about this because um, every now and then, when I, you know doing the research, um, I would encounter. Really, what, what we kind of think of more like micro-communities, not, not the village, but certain people in the village um, who had a different but still folkloric concept of the devil. And, and people were certainly, uh, you know, genuinely frightened about being haunted by the devil. Um, it took place in England, certainly, in that kind of further wing of... Um, Protestantism, moving into Methodism. There are some fascinating stories for, from Methodist preachers uh, of defying the devil, where essentially these were basically, you know, larger than life characters, which I think you have to do if you're going to kind of, you know, walk into a large drunk encampment of, of um, guys brought in to um, dig the railway line uh, and shout to them, I am going to say the word of the Lord to you and I am going to make you sober, chaste teetotalers. Um, you know, you have to be pretty thick around the chest yourself and able to, uh, you know, come up with some pretty instant repartee. There are glorious examples um, in, in, in which um, these stray preachers have actually talked about, um, you know, bare knuckle fights against the devil, um, spiritual warfare in the most literal sense. Uh, and you can see that, yes, you know, being able to talk like that could probably get you out of a difficult situation if you were trying to preach the Lord to the unconverted. So all of that was happening. And, and I don't think there really is any overlap. I mean, the one, the one thing about devil traditions, um, and, and Sarah Paddles has written, Sarah Bartles has written brilliantly about this in, in her Victorian devil book, um, is that there are so many different ways in which the devil could be used. Um, you know, he, he was a, a mobile signifier. Um, by the, the learned, as, as well as by the folk, and of course, at a kind of you know, meta level, the the learned imagined the folk believing in the in the literal devil, um, in in a way that they didn't, just to kind of flirt with the possibility that he could be scarier than he actually was in in late Victorian Britain. Hmm. So, how far back did your research take you? When does this tradition begin as some as something that can sort of be seen to have different variations across the country? Well, I, I was lucky because um, one of the um, contributory projects that kind of fed, fed into this was work that I had been doing, um, Society for Name Studies in Britain and Ireland, 
um, on supernatural placenames. Um, so we, we'd included the devil placenames along with you know lots of names that refer to some sort of fairyish um, spirit, which which take you well back. I mean, I mean the the earliest of, of those is, is, is eighth century, um, and, and um, you know they, they carried on being coined right into modern times, and are still being coined, I think. Um, but um, it was at that point that I, I discovered the devil name is completely anomalous, unlike all the others that had this very long timeline. There were fashions, but you could see that a, a tradition of, of naming, um, you know, lanes and hills and caves and lonely places was, was going on. The devil names appeared in the 16th century, Wumpf, like mid um, 16th, 1564, I think, the um, Devil's Dyke at uh, Newmarket was, was the earliest one. And then really, you know, they carried on thinly through through into the, the 17th century. And when I actually um, did the statistics, there's you know, a great advantage about something like that. Now you can go online uh, and this huge corpus of material is just calling out for you. You just have to keep on cruising and cruising through particular combinations of devil names and noting new ones. Um, the median date for a devil place name was the 1880s. Uh, that, that was the date at which there were more before and more afterwards. And I was coming up with loads and loads of, of um, 21st century ones, which, you know, were not in any books at all. They were just people reminiscing in a website, kind of going, oh, you know, you remember when we were kids, we used to dare each other to run down the devil's steps. You know, and this was just like Facebook and stuff and people kind of, you know, chatting and I, I, I'm jumping on it. I, and it's very wicked, you know, as a folklorist, you're supposed to, you know, get your tape recorder and venture out there into the dark and remote countryside. And I was just sitting at my desk kind of going, hey, this is great, you know, friends reunited, what a source. <laughs> <laughs> so... Your book has nine chapters, each with a different motif, really, a different sort of way that the, the devil is, is depicted in English folklore. Um, I don't expect you to talk about all of them, obviously, but why do you think those particular sort of areas are, are the themes which the devil appears in? What is it about, I guess, for example, moving, moving standing stones or things such as that or appearing in a storm? Yeah, Apart yeah, from being it, a really good story, is it, why, why the devil? How, how deep do you want to go psychologically? This, this fascinates me in, in a way. Um, I think one, one of the factors here is that I don't feel so remote from the Victorian countryside. I mean, maybe I'm showing my age. But um, the world of the, uh, the villager... Um, is not so alien to us that we can kind of do what an anthropologist does. I, I think that somebody who's actually exploring total cultural difference will, will, will sit there and everything about what they're being told, um, you know, in the village tea house or whatever, is going to be meaningful to them. In some ways, I'm not sure that there are deep meanings in the devil. I, I think it's more that I can see ideas that are picking up from the stories. Um, you know, cer certainly um, nowadays we're sensitised to this one. Um, you know, female resistance is, is, is one of them. So there are an awful lot of stories about, about um, you know, clever girls and, and forceful matrons. Um, and, and, you know, and, and you, you brought out that kind of interpretive toolkit. Um, you, you were kind of going, well, what, what does the devil tell us about, about you know, social relations. I, I was fascinated, I, I have to say, to, to, to realise that, that um, despite the toolkit, I was firmly, you know, jamming and my, my intellectual um, screwdriver into a slot that it didn't fit. 
uh, that there was absolutely nothing about race, um, despite you know the um, you know the continual narrative emphasis on the blackness of the devil, which in the um, late antiquity, um, in 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 the very very deep past of these demon stories, had had absolutely been there for somebody like Gregory the Great, um, who obviously was um, you know part of a Mediterranean culture. You can't say a culture that had black slavery, a culture that had slaves from absolutely everywhere, um, but you know was fascinated by the image of the devil as what as he says, an Ethiopian. Uh, and this carries on ridiculously in, in English stuff. People who wouldn't have known what an Ethiopian looked like if they met one on the street were still repeating this. And yet there was absolutely nothing about it, um, you know, in the material that I was getting. Um, I would love to actually um, get some more comparative work done um, from the Americas to see see what actually happened when, when, when some of this law came full circle. So that's kind of another project. In a way, what I would really like to get out of the book, um, although, as I say, it's, you know, predominantly an English book with, with, with you know, Cornish and a bit of Welsh thrown in, um, to actually get material from other cultures. I mean, one of the examples that I was very proud of, simply because it, it was an opportunity to give credit to um, a friend, um, was the, the work that David Shankland had done on um, legends, local legends in Turkey, where I was like, hang on, that's the legend of uh, Providence from, from, from Derbyshire, the story about the, uh, the minister who, who says a prayer over the food and then suddenly the, the, the feast breaks up and the devils all flee. Um, and he'd had been told it by, by his colleagues in, in, in Turkey, again, you know, round, round, round the coffee bar, the same but different. Hmm. You mentioned that in some of the stories, for example, with the with the reeking in Shropshire, that that's perhaps an adaptation of an of an older tale involving a, a giant. Um, how much of the stories about the devil do you think are repurposed older stories, and how many are well were contemporary at the time? How many were new? I suppose. I I, I got the impression that. Um... Again, this is the, the difference between the availability of tale types um, and, and, and continuity on the ground. You, you can't always assume that you know, a story is carried on being told in, in one place and they, they just exchange heroes, although at the region this, this definitely does seem to have happened. What, what's more likely here is that you know, within the, um, the English-speaking framework, and one of the things that interested me is that some proverbs and, and um, you know, typical sayings about the devil um, actually turned out to be, you know, recurrent for, from, um, you know, Devon to Northumberland. And you're thinking, like, how, how much of an overlap is that? Because th these are people who, you know, in the 19th century were, were speaking certainly like, you know, unintelligible Englishes to each other. Um, and yet they still participated. I, th I think that um, language um, and tale types then becomes a, a kind of connective chain. Um, certainly it's significant that um, as soon as you crossed into areas where English was a second language, um, Wales, Ireland, the, the Channel Islands, even in the most immediate area, um, you realise that the, the quality of the law differed completely. And one of the things I, I didn't um, flag up so much, because uh, I was kind of discussing presences, not absences, the complete absence of the landscape devil 
um, from Irish language, Irish material. But the presence in the Irish Collectania, in, in, in things like Sean Sullivan's Book of Irish Folktales, of a far more moral devil. I mean, most Irish people, you know, with a reasonably good story repertoire, um, have got holy stories and they, they've got stories in which the devil appears actually as the theological devil, as, as, as the tempter. The stories may be told with, with a smile, but they are definitely in a Catholic framework. And I, I realised then how much of a difference Protestantism had made, not, not to um, a religious sensibilities. You know, you, you've got people, as I say, the, the Methodist preachers wrestled with devils. But it's very, very rare. There's only one story which is, is at all a folk tale but with, you know, happening in that circles. And that's very rarely um, got a devil in it, although um, continental versions got angels. Uh, but it's, it's the story of the lonely preacher walking through a wood who, who hears two men muttering about the fact that he's probably got a bit of money on him and they'll do him over at the next turning. And a black dog shimmers out of the, um, the trees and keeps paces with him and won't go away, shoot, shoot, won't go, it sticks by him. And as they walk past the men, the dog looks at them and the men slope away. And when the preacher gets to the far end of the wood, the dog disappears. Now that I've discovered, although there are a few versions, a few versions about it being a lonely woman, just some very modern versions, just in which you know my granny said that once you know she was walking through the streets late at night. But it circulated um, as a tale about creatures, and and so I think did the um, the Shaitan stroke Providence, um, the primitive Methodist story that that was actually being told on circuit um, by working class preachers. Otherwise, Protestantism just isn't friendly to stories. Catholicism is enormously friendly to stories. You, you, you've got um, sermon literature, you, you've got the whole hagiographical basis. Um, you know, even, even sermon stories don't quite have that folk um, value to them um, in, in, in um, Anglican Protestant preaching, which is unusual because of course, you know, a story will work very well in the pulpit, but they, they've lost that kind of folktale element to it. Hmm, okay. So, sorry, just to clarify, what effect did that did Protestantism have on this subject, on, on folktales about the devil, in England, anyway? I'm, I'm pushing for a model, and, and one of the dangers here is that, you know, by the time you're the person writing the book, you know, you're like, aha, you know, I, I, I can come up with my theory. Only really somebody else working on the material at an equal level would, would be able to um, dispute it. Um, and in a classical um, academic session, everybody spends their entire career arguing with other people. You, know, you get kudos for knocking somebody else's um, argument down like nine pits. Um, folklore is, is, is a much more friendly discipline, and we, we tend to kind of back each other up. Um, but the theory which I would put up as my personal nine pit, to see if anybody with a, a better knowledge of the subject could actually deny it um, from, from evidence. The theory would definitely be that um, up until early modernity, which of course for England is, is also the Reformation, there was a kind of common um, cultural narrative between upper and lower classes, between what Peter Burke calls the, um, the great and the little tradition, um, in which pretty much everybody told stories about the same history. Um, it had kings and it had vikings a bit earlier on and it had saints who did wonderful things earlier on uh, and, and it went into a remote past with giants in because uh, giants were in fact perfectly intellectually credible. Um, 
Saxo Grammaticus writing the history of Denmark in the, um, the 13th century says, well, of course there were giants. I mean, look, you know, all these big stones lying around. Um, you know, they must have been put up by somebody who was able to chuck stones around. So like this, you know, what to us is an absolute screaming folk belief is here being promoted by a learned historian as, as a, a matter of sober archaeological influence. So that tradition was still current, I, I think, up, up until 1500, 1600. But then gradually, as antiquarianism and, and the learned tradition of the past became a bit more fixed and, and, and the learned started going on about the Druids and Julius Caesar and all that stuff, so the folk lost their participation in that story. Um, they couldn't actually come up with anything that sounded at all convincing about the, um, the figures that, that were part of the... Um, the official prehistory of England. So instead, what they came up with is a, a more mythicized prehistory, which was like, you know, deliberately intended as, as a folk one. So that um, whereas, you know, there, there are hints earlier that the giants form part of a continuum with um, heroes, um, the surviving um, heroic corpus um, from Anglo-Saxon literature, of course, wiped out after, after 1066 and never really replaced. Um, in Ireland, and in the, uh, the Scottish Geltoch, you've got a completely different situation where the ancient history, um, going back to the, the Kings of Tara and, and the Red Branch into Finnacool, never gets pushed out until right into the 19th century from, from the story. So the folk, if you like, um, the people who you meet when you're going around looking at these sites, are telling the same history that the learned manuscripts are telling, and of course they're, they're you know they're applying it to their local area in the same way that nowadays um, you know your village history will have a few pretty you know routine remarks about prehistoric man and the Romans and the Vikings who, who are all really you know at a, at a kind of very simple level still mythical figures to us, um, and it fits into the um, the official narrative. So so I think throughout Europe because you know this this creation of landscape level traditions isn't just a Protestant thing. It, it, it's happening at the same time in Spain, it's happening at the same time in Catholic Germany, Catholic France. Um, the people are creating um, a new and slightly more fantastic remote past. Um, and, and the learned are, are creating a, a past that nobody else can participate in. And then when the two eventually do meet up again, the um, the working class past has become so alien uh, that it's now characterized as being folklore and everyone starts getting terribly interested in it. Right, yeah. So I guess what what you're what you're saying is is that some of the devil folklore, the stories that you researched, uh, come about from um people's having to adjust their their imagination, I guess, in, in light of cultural changes. Yeah, very much so. And and the devil upgrades um, you know, in, in, in terms of technology, um, you know, when carriages are the things, he, you know, he drives a carriage. And of, of course, you know, in um, rumour legends, um, in, in, in stories that are, are being told um, with the spice of truth to them, which is still the diabolical area to it, which you, you're not going to get here, but you are going to get elsewhere. You know, the, the devil is, is now, you know, white van man. Um, you know, he drives around in a sinister vehicle harvesting body parts. Um, so very rarely, I, I think, again, the danger about having a corpus of um, Victorian legend is that we tend to um, 
dress up these figures uh, in period costume. It interested me, in fact, because one of the jobs I, I had, you know, to make the book work was to, to add illustrations. And I had originally thought of um, going for old Victorian pictures. But I, I discovered they were so various, they never quite matched up with each other. That, that was why in the end I, I just went for the landscape photograph. Um, but also there was this fascinating tendency of, of people who had to illustrate a folk story. And this is still pretty much true if you, you look at any of the, um, the books that are coming out. I mean, even up to something like, like Amy Jeff's work, where, um, brilliant pictures. And of course, she is a, an Anglo-Saxonist, so, so she's got an excuse. But they all tend to pitch these stories in a medieval world. And, and you think, well, as told, um, you know, the, um, the technology of the stories is, is always the um if you, if you can say say that the craftsmanship of the stories is always contemporary you know the, the smith has a forge just like the um the forge in the village um one of the things i i you know flagged up is the fact that in the um the story of the mowing match uh, it is just taken for granted in um high 19th century british folklore um that when there is a match to see who can mow a field faster um it is going to be done with size, which only came in in, in, in the, um, the, the mid to late 19th century um, as, as a means of, of um, bringing in crops. I mean, obviously size for, for hay had been in existence previously, but, but they were reworked. Your, your classic kind of rural museum size is just as much of a Victorian artifact um, as, as a, um, a Victoria or a broom carriage. And that's the world in which the story is being told. But of course you can't, move on from them. Um, you know, the story can't be updated to give the devil a combine harvester. So <laughs> again, you know, it's been, it has been fossilized. The, the narrative requires um, a, a certain period level, you know, like smock country, uh, which you can't get away from. I think in a way, this, this is the, um, the nature of modernity. Um, you know, for, for most of history, when you went into a pub, you went into what looked like somebody's house. Um, and, and, you know, they, they, they served you, you know, some beer, as your friends might serve you a bit of beer that they brewed. And we now live in a world where if you go into a pub, it is going to do its damnedest to look like the interior of Victorian gin palace as constructed in 1890, because that's like what the inside of a pub looks like. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, just going back to what you were talking about there, did you get any indication that some of the stories that were told about the devil were seasonal or would or would be told at certain times of the year. I'm just thinking about the, the competition. To thresh a field feels like something that might be told around harvest time. I, I'm not sure that that has actually been the English way. I mean, one of the, the hazards, is, as people will point out, is that we don't have um, good um, contemporary... Um, records. Uh, the, the, the Penguin Book of English Folktales is, is, is probably one of the best collections of storytelling getting as near to the, uh, the words and the occasion that you will. But basically, professional storytellers, um, from, from whom we have a corpus, people like the, the, the last um, tradition of gypsy storytellers, um, the, the, the Greys up in, up in Lincolnshire, were normally doing it because it was a pub entertainment. So it's like pulling out your, your fiddle and, and giving them a dance tune. Um, if somebody paid you, then you would do it. Um, it's curious that even the, um, the one tradition that, that we have, 
um, you know, the, the chronological tradition of ghost stories of Christmas, seems to be a kind of Dickensian thing. Um, it's not at all certain that it was automatically digital, although what's happening there is that, you know, in, in an era with poor lighting, um, you know, storytelling is the radio of the poor. Um, and therefore, of course, yes, there would be a lot more stories in the winter, uh, just because there's not all else to do. You, you, you're sitting around and there's a long time before bedtime. Generally speaking, the situation is much more dependent on social situation than, than calendar. Um, in the case of the, um, the local stories, yes, it's triggered by the location. You, 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 you point out the stone, you know, what's the wet stone the devil was uh, using when he was trying to get his scythe in order for the mowing match and so on. Um, you took people, and, and some of these monuments are actually so obscure. I mean, they, you know, the, the, the Thor's stone near the Devil's Jumps um, at Surrey, you actually have to crash around um, in the middle of a heath to, to find it. It's never been that easy to find. So, um, you know, there I think the story actually motivates you to go and find the thing rather than something like the Devil's Dyke, which the, the, the Sussex one, which is such an overwhelming landmark. That you can't miss it and, and uh, in that case i think you know quite clearly what was happening was that people were turning up to look at the um the landmark um and then had nothing to do and, and so you know well whilst um, you know the kettle was boiling or on the primer stove or, or equivalent uh, your local guide would tell you a folk tale to, to while away the time um you, you can spot a lot of these um story types and with giants the equivalent is the um, the stories of, of vincent and gorham at the bristol gorge where again it's a beauty spot um you know you go up there you have a local guide to get you back over durham downs and therefore you've got the storytelling opportunity and it's interesting there's a lovely exhibition done um, a couple of years ago at the tate on on ruins in british art with with an accompanying book um which um specified because it was looking actually at the um, the Victorian, you know, the, the, the Regency, cult of ruins, the innumerable occasions on which somebody turned up at a ruin, um, again, you know, possibly if only for, for reasons of prudence and safety, find out where, where the unsafe bits were, you know, you hailed your, your, your local person and said, you know, my good lady, I will take you, you know, give you a good sixpence if you take me around the ruins. And of course, a lot of people, you know, in the, in the summer, um, you know, took to hanging around their local ruin on the assumption this was an easier way to make money than field labour. Um, and therefore, you had almost, you know, professional storytellers there in that particular situation, that season, if you like, because it, it is being done in the summer. But it's an outcome of, of the particular meeting of, of, of one. It's, it's a meeting um, of the, the genteel tourist and, and the, um, the, the local informed person. It's a meeting of the, um, the parent and the child who wants a story. Very often, I think, for the transmission of some of this material, particularly a lot of the scary material, um, it is the meeting of the, um, the young country girl who, who has um, come up and, and been moved around. This is one reason that these stories, one way in which these stories shift around the country. Um, she's actually been taken on as a servant in a new part of the country. Um, you know, she's like 13, 14 but has been looking after her little brothers and sisters and cousins since she could basically hoik up a baby on her arm and take it away from mum. And, and so looking after, you know, um, yeah, 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 young mister and young miss comes naturally to her. And of course, as soon as they start looking fractious, she entertains them with a story. Hmm. Um, towards the end of the book, there's a chapter titled Amid, Amid the Shrieking of the Storm. And in, in that, you, you relate a folk tale about 
I think it's a church in Devon where there's a massive storm and there's a, a, yeah, a crack yeah, of thunder yeah. and, a, and a sinner is is struck down and um you know the I, I suppose the the rational explanation for that is that the church was hit by lightning and and unfortunately someone was affected by that was hit by that bolt of energy um is it unfair to paint people in the past at that time as being so credulous that they would think it was the devil is that is that sort of an invention for the to make a good story or do you think that people might have thought that that was a a genuine supernatural event if if it was and i'm not saying it wasn't i'm just i think it probably was a lightning strike but i think it sometimes that people rural people in the past can perhaps unfairly be seen as overly credulous did you get that impression at all yeah, i feel for you there yes because it's very much like pointing the finger at people and going haha you got it wrong um I, there is no doubt um because in fact the um the Widdicombe story is, is the, the very last of, of a long sequence of narratives going back to about the um, 8th century, in which um, demonic animal presences are, are reported as having damaged um, churches during storms. And I think there's no doubt that from the way in which these are reported, um, they are, obviously they're being transmitted within monastic circles, so they've got a particular take on things, they are being transmitted as what happened. You've, you've got then, because you're not, of course, looking at ignorant peasants then, you're talking about ignorant, educated men um, who are actually sending each other's letters um, in, in, in which, um, you know, they, um, they report on it. Quite interestingly, the only occasion I can remember in which um, the natural explanation is, is given as, as a rival version um, is, is in the case of Christchurch, which was burnt down, Christchurch Friary was burnt down in um, 1113 by a five-headed dragon. Um, see, see the miracles of um, the Virgin of Leon by Her- Herman of Leon, if not believing yours truly. Uh, and it, and it, it's absolutely wonderful because he says, you know, and we were, you know, about 200, 300 yards out of town when, when um, our companions said to us, look, look over there. And we looked, and by God, there was this five-headed dragon. And we're thinking, well, that's pretty reliable eyewitness evidence there. And then you look into it and it, rather embarrassingly, it turns out the whole thing was written 40 years after the event. And, and that Herman wasn't actually on the trip. He was just using first-person narrative because he thought it made sounded, you know, a, a, a little bit more awestruck. Um, and and Guybert of um, Nozon, who, who did actually write one of the first um, sceptical monographs on, on um, saints' cults, kind of going, look, you know, they can't all be real, these relics, um, says in his version um, that it, the, the church was struck by lightning. So, you know, the, the scientific, the natural, version and, and, and the supernatural version were available. And of course, at that period, you're making a false contrast because knowledge about the world um, included then knowledge about demons and, and things, you know, demons did things. And it was a job of, of um, learned inquiry to figure out exactly what it was that demons did. Um, all sorts of um, interwoven um, bibli- biblical, uh, scriptural um, evidence proved that they they occupied the middle air, that they had power over storm, um, and that uh, you know therefore of course you would expect them to attack churches. So like you know in terms of how knowledge is put together, and of course the thing is experientially it's all very well to kind of go I oh, don't be ridiculous. If we had been there, we would not be in any position to actually kind of go, gosh no it's a bolt of lightning. Well you know the the, the, the restrike of the lightning because essentially your eye is being seared by um, 
the, the glow of something moving faster than you can possibly follow it. All you know is that there was this massive glowing shape in the middle of the church and it left this weird kind of black impression on your retina afterwards. Uh, as far as you were aware, you know, it might be in the giant gore or a pig or a dog. Um, it's only that the possible range of what can happen has now been limited. I mean, for a while I, I, I did, you know, flirt with, um, and uh, it's interesting that a couple of people in, in the Fortean um, tradition have kind of gone, oh, you know, this is just like ball lightning. It's an amazing shape breaking its way down the middle of a church. Uh, and you're like, no, it isn't. <laughs> Not when you, when you actually get as far as Widdicombe, where, of course, for the first time, the scientific explanation is written at the time um, by people who are trained, although it's a, um, a pious pamphlet, it's a scientific explanation of what happened. And the folk explanation still sticks to the devil because, you know, that's a better story. Mm, yeah, definitely. So do you have a favourite story from your research that's in the book? I, I, was, I was very, very tempted. Uh, I, I had to include the very final one. Um, the, 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 the Dartmoor legend of, of the, uh, the huntsman that runs down the beautiful lady. Um, as I say, partly because um, from a folkloric point of view, I, I could actually spot, um, you know, the fact that this was very much an outlier. Again, probably a Catholic tradition which had kind of gone astray in Protestant England, so that the, uh, the original version in which it's a priest's mistress um, being run down by the devil. That in itself, has a history which we're only really starting to to uncover because of course there was a period in in, in deeper medieval history where when you know the so-called priest contraband was simply the priest's wife um priests were married in the the western church um as, as they continued to be in the east um up until about 1100 when the um the higher echelons of the church started getting snooty about it uh, and then gradually this um campaign which was almost like kind of you know the communist campaign against the kulaks that um, you know people who had blamelessly thought they were nice upstanding farmers suddenly found out they were blood-sucking leeches who were you know um taking the living out away from the good peasantry and, and um you know quite clearly happily married couples who had been living in the parsonage suddenly discovered that that he was um, a, a dreadful sinner and that she, she was a vehicle of temptation and it's like oh you you get you get examples in which the stories simply clash um you know because you've got children of clerical marriages who refuse to accept that this narrative is true about their parents. So um, the devil is being brought on to do things. The, the, the devil is definitely being introduced here to, to add a, a note um, of, of much more visceral horror to a story than, than I think would otherwise have, have happened. Um, and yet, of course, in, in that wonderful, um, you know, it, it, it's been said that nothing bad ever happens in English history, or, or if it does, we make out that it was for the best all the, all the while. Um, uh, you know, the um, taking to hell in, 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 a, in a screaming pursuit of the damned woman running through through the fields has become uh, a lovely lady pursued, but luckily escaping just at the last moment from the horned huntsman and his red-eyed hounds and getting out and thanking the lady who saves her. You know, it's a kind of, you know, sisterhood thing um, in, 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 in which one character is supporting another and the devil, you know, stomps off disappointed. And of course, what I loved here was the fact that this is very, very English, not to say Anglican, that there are still um, parallel Scots narratives in which the damned soul is run down and is captured with the hounds sinking their fangs into its tormented flesh. And a jolly good thing, too, if you're a Calvinist. <laughs>
now that we've been out of lockdown for a little while in the UK, have you had a chance to go to some of these places? I, I have been saving it up. I think what I'd love to do is return with some other people. Um, one of the great advantages about the work we do in the Vogel Society is that you know, every year we have um, the legendary weekend conference, uh, which moves around the country. Um, so we, we are going to, uh, to shift around and uh, as, as we get to uh, move to a venue which is near it, I'll, I'll, I'll go out and we'll have, you know, farm out and, and take photos and all the things you couldn't do in lockdown, actually get a feeling about how these legends are being used now, you know, stop and talk to people. Mm. We're almost out of time, so I've got one final question. Do you think the landscape devil is still out there? I, I know that early on in our conversation, we we discussed how this this sort of period of folklore ended basically. But do you think that the the character and the stories that are told still happen? I, I I'm thinking of characters like the Men in Black, or people still tell stories of encountering sinister strangers. I suppose. So do you think that he still exists in that format? They, they do, absolutely. Yeah, I, I think that um, supernatural experience is, is, is generating a, a huge amount of stories. Um, and not just um, the ones that are, are regularised, if you like. I mean, there, there, there's a sense in, in which, you know, there, there's kind of corpus of ghosts, which it's okay to see, and everybody will kind of take it for granted that you're, you're telling what happened to you, even if they try to come up with a rational explanation. People are also still seeing absolutely weird stuff you know walk, walking stick men and, and, and animated trees um which in, in a way is, is you know may or may not be the weird substrate which is behind a great deal of folklore i, I think there's a bit more of a feedback loop here between what people believe to be possible and what people see i don't think that any of this material is going to generate quite the same um folk tales in in, in the same way that you know there are going to be no new fairy tales if you're thinking about the kind of you know the Snow White and Cinderella genre. That's now again the fixed canon, and people respond to that by reinterpreting it, not by coming up with new ones. I think, in a way, the um, the devil of, of of story rather than experiential encounter um, has gone meta. People don't just you know appreciate the stories as they might have done as, as, as a straightforward tale. You know, I mean. They, why is that chap buried in the church with what looks like his heart, you know, sticking out in front of his chest? Well, it's because the devil tore his heart out. No, I think now what happens is, is that people will assemble. I and mean, Sussex is fascinating for this because there is actually a Sussex storytelling group, which is doing guided walks to reconnect people with the landscape. Um, people step into a framework, which, which is exactly the same as all other folk stuff. Um, you know, you don't apprehend a folk song. Um, as if somebody had just written it, and you're kind of, oh, a really powerful lyric. You apprehend it as something that's working within that genre, um, and, and which is, you know, capable of, of subverting it a little bit, which is capable of being contemporary. Um, you know, heavy metal, Morris dancing, there is a bit of overlap there, but uh, only when you're dancing Morris, ironically. <laughs> well... Jeremy, this has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast. Thank you. It's been wonderful. If people want to find out more about yourself and how to get a copy of Globe and Country, how do they do that? Um, Reaction, my publishers, who are really actually quite a nice bunch of people to work with, 
um, have got a perfectly excellent website and, and, and you, you can go and uh, click on it there. Excellent. Well, I'll make sure to put that information in the show notes. Thanks. Bye. Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you so much for listening to my interview with Jeremy. I hope you found it interesting. Cloven Country, the devil in the English landscape, is an excellent piece of writing and well worth parting with your hard-earned money for it to grace your bookshelves. Copies are available from the publisher, Reaction Books, or you can order it from your favourite bookshop. Please also consider rating this episode wherever you listen and sharing it on social media, as it really helps Some Other Sphere to grow and find new listeners. You can follow Some Other Sphere on Twitter and Mastodon, and subscribe on most of the well-known podcast platforms. You can also support the upkeep of the podcast with a donation via Ko-fi. Details on how to do that are in the show notes. If you'd like to email me here at SphereHQ, the address is someothersphere at gmail.com. It'd be lovely to hear from you. Until next time, be safe and well, and I hope you'll join me again soon for another episode of Some Other Sphere.